Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Thank you for downloading, subscribing and rating. I really appreciate all of your support. Coming up on this week's programme, Elon Musk, Brain Implants and the Android Generation. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us, science@newstalk.com. You can uh, also find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. Uh, we get to all of your comments at the end of the podcast. First, though, it's time to look back at some of the breaking stories from the world of science this week. We're joined by Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Laura Healy, science communicator. Um, so our first story was a mad one, Laura. This is to do with Alzheimer's, which you mentioned last week. Uh, you know, blood tests maybe be able to predict it um, accurately, which is fantastic. But this is um, an unusual one, transferable Alzheimer's. Yeah, so this is hot off the press, um, just published in Nature Medicine just a couple of days ago. And it comes from the Institute of Prion Disease in London. It is terrifying and fascinating in equal measure. It's the story of, as you said, person-to-person transmission of Alzheimer's disease. Um, So this is a third and new type of Alzheimer's. The other two we may uh, know about are late onset sporadic Alzheimer's or early onset inherited Alzheimer's. Those are the two that we're most familiar with. Um, So this is a third and new type, but unlike a lot of the headlines that we've seen during the week, which might cause a lot of fear in us, it's not talking about transmittable um, in the sense of like a cold or a flu. Hmm. This is coming from a rare medical contamination incident. So this happened in a small group of people who received injections of human growth hormone as children back in uh, the years between 1959 and 1985. And these children needed human growth hormone for various um, illnesses to do with like uh, they weren't growing at the correct rates that children are meant to grow at and their height wasn't um, in line with the average height for children their age. And that's why they received these human growth hormone injections. Mm. But um, the problem was that these injections were contaminated with prions, which they didn't know about at the time. And another thing to mention about these um, human growth hormone injections as, is that they came from dead donors' um, pituitary glands. We, we don't do that anymore, thankfully. Um, and that was the source of the contamination. Mm. And we might have heard about prions previously. Um, They're the folded proteins from mad cow disease, is that yes, right? Yes, exactly, right. exactly. Uh, they are infectious, misfolded proteins. They live in the brain tissue and they can actually lie in your brain tissue dormant for decades um, before you realise that you have a problem. And as you said, yeah, they're, they're associated with mad cow disease, which was first... Um, found cases in the UK in 1986 and then in Ireland in 1989. And this was due to the genius idea to feed cows, dead cows, which I don't know how we ever thought that was going to be a good idea and yeah. work out. But um, this was ground up meat and bone meal from dead cows, which we then reused and fed. And specifically to. spinal um, spinal matter, right? So let's yeah. Actually, this is gross. So let's <laughs> move on. Um, when you said a third type of Alzheimer's, this is not something I picked up on. So how does this differ from the other two Alzheimer's or why, do, why are they saying this is a succinct or distinct type of um, condition? They're classifying it as Alzheimer's because it is a form of dementia, but it, it there's no genetic component. So it causes the same um, symptoms uh, as the other two types of Alzheimer's, uh, but they can't point to any uh, genetic component. Right. Um, but it does leave those amyloid beta plaques that are classic 
of Alzheimer's disease. What about this discovery? I mean, does it tell us anything about um, how these plaques accumulate in the brain or how they get there? I mean, is this is there any good to come out of this story? No, and no. <laughs> and usually I did get to the end of the paper and I was thinking, God, these scientists really don't want to even give a ray of hope. Their last line is even highlighting the fact that even if a cure was to be found for this disease, that it is at high risk of um, becoming uh, resistant, that the prions would become resistant because they are so um, complex in their structure. Right. Um, so they, I was surprised that they actually avoided any hope. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what? That's sometimes the best, you know, that's the way it is. There's no point in putting a, um, a rainbow on really, really um, negative news. So mm-hmm. um, interesting. Ruth, our second story has to do with a lake on Mars. So this has been a long time coming. I was going to say, this is kind of yet more research which confirms that we're pretty sure that there was water on Mars, flowing water. And this is work that comes from researchers in the University of California, Los Angeles and the University of Oslo. And this is from data coming from the famous Mars rover that many of us watched landing on Mars a couple of years ago. Um, So there was a number of different elements to this um, uh, sort of landing. There was the Ingenuity helicopter, which which, um, took off from the Martian surface, but there was also this rover called Perseverance. So it's sort of car-sized vehicle with six wheels that was specifically landed on a particular part of Mars where there was, you know, some previous data to suggest that perhaps there could have been water there. And that data had come from a spaceship that's been circling around Mars for nearly 20 years. And it Mm. had picked up the signature of mineral deposits and kind of clays, which are are associated with water. Mm. Um, But the Perseverance rover has a special piece of equipment on it, a special kind of radar where it can sort of send signals down into the Earth at 10 centimetre intervals, and it can pick up what kind of what kind of ground is underneath. And this allows the researchers to put together kind of a slice of ground that's about um, two metres long. So what it looks like, it's kind of like if you see a road that road works and you can see the different layers, the tarmac on top and then maybe a layer of gravel underneath. And the scientists can see exactly the same thing here. So they can see distinct layers of sediment and evidence of erosion. And of course, these are two things that happen when we have kind of rivers and flowing water. Um, So so as you say, it's kind of a a long time coming and it's probably not a very dramatic finding. But I mean, what it means is this place, the Jezero Crater, it's, it's the right place to go. The original signals are confirmed and of course the scientists can't wait now to get their hands on these samples when they eventually get back from Mars um, you know, to see if they can analyse them and exactly what's in them. You know, Is there evidence of microbes when we actually start to, to look at them in more detail? Yeah, it, it, you need to be a very patient person in the space uh, game because I remember when they were landing Curiosity at the time, I, I, I was funny, they were laying the groundwork to possibly one day look for life. And I was like, you've got a robot on Mars, why don't you just look for life now? And uh, it just doesn't work that way. Did we get anything else from this ground radar? I mean, I think it contrasts with what we've seen before, which is that in other parts of Mars, we see things like volcanic rock. So I think for me, what's really interesting is that we're seeing signatures on Mars that you can imagine might be found on a version of our planet, you know, if things go horribly wrong. You know, all those different processes. It's just a matter of when. Yeah, just a matter of when. So I think it kind of reminds us, you know, to be careful of here. Um, Laura, our third story uh, has to do with morning sickness and quite an interesting one. Yeah, it's a hopeful story this time and it comes from nature again um, from researchers in Cambridge University and it's helping us understand 
the root cause of morning sickness, which affects 80% of women and 3% of women experience a more severe form of morning sickness known as hyperemesis gravidarum, which can lead to dehydration, weight loss. And you might remember Kate Middleton was um, hospitalised with this. I know, I know. Um, So it it can be quite severe and uh, it can be very serious in these more extreme cases. These researchers found a link between Um, this nausea and elevated amounts of a hormone called GDF-15. And this hormone is naturally occurring in all of us, in men and in women, and it is a natural response to stress. Um, But during pregnancy, it is elevated because the fetus and placenta actually produce large amounts of it. But it is a problem for certain women and not others. And what these researchers found was a genetic variant in the women who Um, experienced this really severe form of morning sickness. Hmm. What they found is that these women actually produce less of the hormone, even though the hormone uh, in elevated amounts causes morning sickness. So these researchers at first were kind of scratching their heads, but then what they've discovered was because these women have low levels at baseline of this GDF-15 hormone, they, when they get pregnant, they actually get walloped with such high amounts, their bodies aren't used to it and they get more sick than the women who just have normal levels pre-pregnancy. Ah, for a moment there I was thinking, oh, this is great. You can just give extra hormones, to, but you, don't, you, you wouldn't really know unless you're going to do this sort of genetic testing of every mother. You're not going to know whether or not they, they're one of these... I'm suffering. Is that right? Yeah, or you can you can also just do a blood test to see what is their baseline circulation of this hormone pre-pregnancy. So they're hoping to develop a treatment for this so that they would um, theoretically like desensitize the women to this GDF-15 before they get pregnant, so that when they do get pregnant, they're not like totally body doesn't go into shock from the amount of hormone that they're about to um, experience. And um, I was thinking of it like if you, uh, Jonathan, were going to enter into a hot chili eating competition and um, you wouldn't start practicing by eating the Carolina Reaper no. just, just to start because then you just wouldn't make it through the whole competition. So in the weeks leading up to it, you would start by, you know, trying some jalapenos, trying to build up your tolerance. Yeah. And that's the same thing that they're going to try and do here with these women. So it's a good news story, um, but no, no actual drugs or treatment yet, but a, a, a theoretical basis to start developing them. Okay, and certainly um, after your first child, you'd know this is a problem. You maybe could start uh, little by little um, yeah. uh, acclimatization to it. Very interesting. Our final story has to do with um, why insects are drawn to light, like moths to a flame. Very interesting story. It is. And, and this is something you might think we already understand because it's something that's so universal. We're all used to seeing at nighttime loads of different kinds of insects gathering around lights. Um, but actually, we don't really, we haven't really understood why it happens until now. Um, and this is new research from Imperial College in London. And what, what's really the advance here is the ability to film insects at very, very high resolution because they move so fast, you know, and obviously they're in the dark. So if you're using kind of night vision cameras, they often just end up as a blur. But here they were able to attach tiny little reflective dots to the wings of insects and then fly them inside a tunnel with eight motion capture cameras uh, where they're capturing like 200 frames a second. So not only were they able to see exactly where the insects were in space relative to the light, they were able to look at the orientation of the insects' bodies And they found something quite unexpected, which was that the insects were always putting their backs to the light. So in fact, when you see an insect flying around a light, they can be in kind of a spiral of trying to keep their back to the light all the time. Um, Why why do they go near the light at all? Well, 
again, back to the, there's a response that's pretty well understood in insect. It's called the dorsal or back backlight response. And and what they do, what, what the hypothesis is here, I mean, is that insects have this very inherent desire to put their back to light. And this is because they've evolved over hundreds of millions of years if they fly at night to keep their back facing the moon. And of course, this is an, an inherent response to get your back to the light. <laughs> Wow. Um, now they don't. What would be the benefit of having your back to the moon? Well, because it helps you to know which way is up. And again, that might seem really bizarre when you're talking about flying because obviously gravity pulls you down to the ground. But if insects are flying around and there's any kind of turbulence in the air, it's really quite difficult for them to orient themselves in space. It's a bit like if you're if you're swimming and you're down in deep water, it can be quite difficult to know which way is up, even though you might feel there's a natural tendency to go up. So, so they suffer from exactly the same thing. Hmm. And the researchers, they, they did this in these kind of lab conditions, but then they also did it in their garden and then their research budget obviously also enabled them to go to Costa Rica and do the same thing um, and they they decided to look not just at, at moths and flies but in fact all these different flying creatures and they found the same thing in all of them. Wow. And what was really interesting was when there was a light on the ground and they filmed the insects they actually found they were flipping upside down and often crashing into the ground. Um, so, you know, to understand this is kind of interesting because we all know that insect populations are in real trouble and I think there's some simple guidance that we can all take from this about you know when we don't have the ability to have dark skies everywhere which are obviously a great solution to protect insects I mean certainly what they're saying is we should think about when we put lights embedded in the ground shining up which might be seen as you know nice ambient lighting for your garden that's probably not good for insects even for street lights we should make sure just put them in (laughs) And I tell you, the wiring of a garden plug, a garden light system, if anybody is not an electrician, just don't do it. Just yeah, don't do it. Probably best to let the, leave that to the professionals. But yeah. but anyway, even with streetlights, they should be shining straight down because we're going to disorientate insects less. And they were also able, able to rule out some of the other theories. So they were able to do tests with insects to see were they attracted to the heat, for example, of the light. And they weren't. So a heat source with no light, they weren't attracted to. And they were also able to look at the angle that they were flying around the light. Because, again, one theory had been that this was sort of to do with navigation. So as opposed to knowing which direction you're facing in space, actually, were they using it as a directional, a navigational aid? But, you know, if they were, they would probably be flying at a kind of constant angle to the light. Mm. And they weren't doing that either. Really Um, interesting. Yeah, Yeah, brilliant. Um, Fascinating stuff. Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Dr. Laura Healy, thank you very much for joining us. This week, Space Payments and Sleazy Notice Board's tycoon Elon Musk uh, announced his Neuralink company has allegedly implanted a wireless brain chip into a human for the first time for that company. Uh, so how significant is this step and how exactly does a brain implant work? Well, joining me now is Dr. Manus Biggs. He's from Curum, the SFI Research for uh, Medical Devices. He's Associate Professor at the University of Galway as well. Um, Manus, let's start off with uh, a brain implant. What exactly is a brain implant? A brain implant. Um, so the Neuralink brain machine technology is, is a class of medical devices uh, that we call a brain machine interface. So this is a, uh, a miniature high-resolution analog of an EEG machine. A physician will place in a room with a big machine, a recorder, and put these sticky electrodes on your scalp. And he will use these to monitor and record brain activity in different regions of the brain. A physician will look for activity that might indicate a medical issue, for example. If we consider that the cells of the brain use very short electrical pulses to talk to each other and to the muscles of the body, for example, uh, that is the electrical pulses um, are the language of the brain and the nervous system. So knowing this then allows scientists, people like me and engineers, 
to talk back to these cells, or in the case of brain-machine interfaces, we can listen to the chatter of these brain cells by uh, recording these electrical pulses. So a brain-machine interface, such as the technology that Musk is, is generating, uh, would be a small sort of two-euro-size um, piece of plastic and metal that's implanted underneath the skull and will sit neatly on top of the brain, and it extends these very small filaments that we call threads into the very surface of the brain, about a millimeter or so beneath the surface of the cortex. And it will use these, these threads, which are electrodes, to monitor brain activity. Uh, these um, brain-computer interfaces are not new. We've covered them many times, 10 years ago, I think. Um, Elizabeth Hutchinson is the name that comes to mind. Um, uh, was able to uh, take a sip from a coffee cup uh, using her brain uh, due to an, an implant that uh, was attached uh, through her skull. Um, but this is a wireless implant that can be charged uh, remotely, which um, is, 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 a, is a new step. And there's other features in this Neuralink implant that are uh, very interesting interesting. Um, talk to me a little bit about what separates this from the sort of stuff that we're seeing in medical research um, that's non-commercial. This technology has sort of been able to come online. I mean, remember, we have to sort of, I guess, put this into context. Like you said, there are other technologies that are in, that are in development. There are, there are other technologies that are more advanced in terms of clinical trials and closer to clinical translation. So there's not an awful lot of novelty relative to um, these ongoing advances. Really, the, the, the significant advances over the, the EEG machine that I mentioned is that these uh, benefit from wireless technology and they've also miniaturized. They've got small components, small batteries and very small electrodes. And they've done this to make them as, as non-invasive as possible mm. uh, and to try and extend their lifetime. Because remember, these devices have a, a very short lifetime, at least in, in, in practice they have done in animal studies. Um, getting these to work for months and years has been a real challenge. Yeah, I want, I want to talk about that in a bit. But um, these implants have much more electrodes than I was previously aware we were using in medical research. The stuff that I was reading about was, you know, you know, in the 10s or 20s uh, of, of right. electrodes. This has a thousand electrodes and can read um, rather, from neuron, ne rather than from neuron groups, from individual neurons. I mean, yes. talk to me a little bit about um, the difficulty of, of, of performing a surgery like that, um, uh, what techniques he is using to, to, to develop, to, to make that operation successful, and the significance yeah. of, of, of the number of electrodes, please. So as you mentioned, this device has a thousand electrodes. So these are housed within 64 individual threads. So 64 tiny little electrodes, which will pass from the device into the surface of the brain, about a millimeter or so. And on these 64 threads, there'd be about 1,000 different contacts, 1,024. Um, these, in theory, can be used to pick up signals from individual neurons. So the individual chatter of these neurons can be translated then into some sort of process, um, some sort of intent. Can a thought be translated into uh, a movement, for example? It'll pick up on this activity and try and translate these using uh, artificial intelligence. So these devices will build on Musk's uh, expertise in the artificial intelligence space by um, using artificial intelligence technology to try and decode what these neural pulses are trying to infer. Mm. Um, what's the intent of these pulses? Now, a thousand, a thousand individual recordings isn't really um, a large number of cells. Remember, we can only record activity from the area directly underneath the implant mm. and a thousand cells is really a drop in the ocean in terms of complex thought processes but allows us to try and create build up schematics of different electrical pulse firing firing rates and firing amplitudes and translate that into specific orders now the, the ultimate goal of this type of technology is to be able to create a device that can um, decode complex thoughts um, we're still a long way from there you know yeah. 
thousand electrode contact sites isn't going to offer that type of technology, but certainly something like movement simple cursor commands may be possible, although this hasn't been shown yet. Well, uh, I, I, I'm surprised to hear that. I thought we had, um, I mean, with uh, Elizabeth Hutchinson, I think uh, she was able to direct a, a robot arm to be able to pick up a, a, a cup. So surely there was at least more than just binary input from the the brain there. And um, and I thought we had, um, I thought there was patency in quite some time ago to allow a cursor to move around a, a, an iPad. This is bad. Have we not gotten to the stage where we can get a cursor to, to move left, right, up, down by training um, these electrodes and, and, and learning a pattern using AI? Yeah, absolutely we can. But that's the level of, of complexity that we're right now. So I guess the... Um, the uh, concept of being able to uh, use implants at least for complex commands, such as transmitting a thought or a series of you know thought processes, mm. that type of that type of technology is still a long way off. But but but, um, um, but, but just um, to go on this, because obviously the the point of this is to be able to perform functions um, that our bodies can't. At least um, this is what Musk has in, in, insinuated that it's going to start off with people who've lost their limbs. But his intention is that it's not just going to be um, the, uh, you know patients who are going to want this technology and. Um, you know, to use a smartphone um, effectively and quickly, you really only need, you know, up, down, left, right, click. So, That's um, sure, yeah. so, so it, you know, that, you know, the complex thought and so on, that really isn't required for, for at least, um, you know, manipulation of, uh, of, a, of a computer or a phone. No, you're, you're correct. But um, the, the cost benefit ratio of, of, you know, an implanted brain device to activate your phone really isn't there unless you have a very serious motor neuron <laughs> disease or some sort of some sort of um, paralysis that yeah. you know prevent you from taking your phone out of your pocket. I mean, if you try and um, if we use the example of a uh, a voice activated so a, a voice command service such as Siri or as uh, Alexa, for example, you can quite accurately tell Alexa to you know place a an order at your local Indian takeaway. And it will do that, or at least it will call the Indian takeaway for you. The purpose of a Neuralink device would be to um, think about what you want to eat and have that, have that communication made for you. So the, the takeaway would get this order without you having to say anything. Just think about what you want to eat. Wow. So, so, um, so when, is, when you say the, the aim of this, this technology, it's not mere motor function. You're saying it, it is much more about being able to, to communicate complex thoughts because... He had said that, but I wasn't entirely sure what he meant by that. So you're talking about much more than just motor, um, sort of motor functions. Absolutely. This, this technology right now, although it would be tested on individuals that do have severe motor deficiencies um, because of the ethical concern with using unhealthy individuals. Um, but ultimately, that's, that's the end game. That's what, um, you know... The, the companies developing these brain machine interfaces, that's what they're, they're aiming for. Right. For having complex um, relay of thoughts. So you communicating wirelessly and seamlessly with your phone and then by proxy by, with other people and with but, other. But, but uh, as you mentioned, it, this is a very small part of the brain. How would that even be possible if we're, if, if you know, I mean, our understanding of the brain is a, uh, an interlinked system and, and that there are parts that are related to different types of functions, but that actually a lot of the electrical signals, they go all over the brain. I mean, how, how on earth can reading just, you know, a small corner of the, the map give us uh, the ability to, to, to transfer complex thought anywhere? Well, you've, you've exactly hit the, the, the nail on the head there. And but Elon Musk is no dummy. There must be some reason why he's trying to do this. At the moment, it's it's... It's 
trying to evaluate the technology to make sure that the device isn't rejected. So can you perform simple tasks such as moving your cursor or turning your phone on, activating your phone? So the equivalent of saying, hey, Siri, yeah. but having, hey, Siri, you know, um, spoken internally and have that to activate a device. Remember, what you're trying to do is, is decode. You know, if we go back to the analogy again of using uh, Alexa, we have a lot of technology, we've developed a lot of technology that, that we can use for voice recognition. So, you know, but it's still not perfect. Mm. It, you can imagine trying to tell Siri a complex thought, you know, even can you pick me up, uh, you know, a Chinese takeaway, I want this, I want number 21. Alexa would still, you know, struggle to do that. But, but Alexa would. is not current gen technology, though, in fairness, man. It's like if you look at some of the technology shown at CES, you look at uh, OpenAI, you know, you have a conversation with OpenAI. OpenAI would absolutely you, be able to do that. You can, but it would still struggle significantly with, with complex thoughts. So, but, but, but the... What I'm, what I'm getting at is the interface. So we're not talking about the technology per se, but the interface between mm. the human mm. and the technology. So the interface between that AI, if it was a voice-activated command technology or a piece of software like Alexa, it still struggles to, to identify um, what you're trying to say. So imagine replacing your voice commands with commands coming from a very small region of your brain mm. um, and electrical pulses. So not vibrations from your voice, um, which we can manipulate quite well as, as being a human. But imagine that these are, are, are electrical pulses that need to be converted into some sort of digital signal yeah. and then um, translated into an intent. So very, very tricky in terms of current technology. You talked about um, the cost benefit of, uh, of a device like this. 1,500 animals have um, met an, an untimely end uh, during testing of a device like this. It's the first time it's been implanted in a human. We don't know how that's particularly uh, gone. Uh, and and your research has shown that actually these implants often build themselves a defense mechanism, uh, which ends up um, making the the brain computer interfaces less able to to record and deliver activity um, in the long run. I mean, one of the problems is it not that um, with this sort of technology is that after six months or, or one year of a trial, often these poor patients uh, end up losing whatever functionality they had because they were part of a clinical trial that moves on. And they end up um, emotionally in a much worse place than they, they have been before. Well, I can't speak to the emotional effects, but certainly the, the functional lifetime of these technologies are, um, are questionable at best. So mm. if we go back again to the analogy of the EEG machine, you know, once these fail, they're, they're thrown away and you get a new sticker and, and you know, you're, you're off to the races again. Um, with an implantable device like this, even though we didn't talk about the, the complexities of actually implanting them, um, so Musk has developed... Te techniques for doing that. Um, there's still no real um, update on how, how well they're performing. But, but I um, suppose but just, just very quickly, um, this robot-assisted surgery, I mean, that, yeah. that is, if you manage to develop that, that is, you know, that is, that could be very beneficial. Very beneficial, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but that, that, that aside, if you were to undergo complex brain surgery, which this is, I mean, it's not as invasive as having a, an electrode, you know, implanted into deep brain regions, which is still routinely used for the treatment of Parkinson's disease, for example. But having a device implanted under the skull that, that penetrates a couple of millimeters into the surface of the brain, it's still an invasive process. Yeah. The individuals are going to be willing to, to have a revisional surgery once every year, every two years, whatever the, whatever the functional lifetime may be. And this is a serious concern. Of course, there's no mention of this um, and it'll be very interesting to see how long these devices perform or will we be updated as to how the device is functioning over the course of weeks or months. So the clinical, the, 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 uh, 
the translation piece is significantly limited by the functional lifetime of these devices after they've been implanted. Yeah. So what we know is that there are the most significant challenge in developing these clinically and translating these into commercial, you know, consumer electronics or bioelectronics, I guess, is the um, initiation of the foreign body response. So yeah. once you implant the, the, the body recognizes them as being foreign uh, almost instantly. Um, principally, this is because of a couple of things. One is, is the size of them. The brain doesn't like to be stabbed with sizable objects. <laughs> and the other thing is the, the mechanical properties of them. They don't, the brain is very, very soft. It does not like something cold and, and hard to be stabbed into it. And it will mount a body response and an inflammatory response that eventually will lead to chronic inflammation and to the formation of a scar. And that scar would encapsulate the device. It'll essentially wall it off. Uh, I used to call it the Donald Trump response, where uh, your body doesn't, doesn't like what it sees and it, it perceives it as being foreign. And so it builds a big wall of scar. <laughs> right. So, um, so, I mean, either this would require um, re-implantation, uh, some way of getting over that rejection, um, which, which he hasn't really even talked about. Um, it, it, one of the... Accusations you could probably throw at Musk is he he loves to talk up uh, what he's doing and um, and that the, the I suppose the clinical limitations of what we're talking about and that cost um, of of the, to the patient seem to be pretty large at the moment. The burden of getting this versus the the benefit of it. I mean, I think the question would be how many people would be willing to have this technology, and, and obviously Musk is aware of this and he's aware that that that. It's even, even for MOS technology, of course, for a lot of people that are very interested in, in all MOS technology, but even at that, having it, something implanted into your brain by a robot or by a skilled neurosurgeon, um, you're going to find numbers dwindling pretty quickly, I think, when you tell really? them, by the way, we do this every 12 months or every 18 months, whatever it might be. Even if they push it out to maybe five years, it's still a, a tall order. And course, God, Manus, I would have thought people would be queuing up for this technology, particularly if they had the name of Elon Musk behind it and and they had lost um, use of their limbs or or had some serious um, deficiency in which they, they couldn't do that. I would have thought there would be no problem in getting people up for a clinical trial, but you might know more than me. I think potentially you're right, but that's within the cohort of people that, that ha do have medical conditions yeah. and other solutions have failed them. For the... the, the, the the cohort of people, the significant cohort of people that just don't want to take their phone out of the pocket and talk into it, and that's a very hard sell. Yeah. Um, certainly, I wouldn't count myself amongst their number. No. Um, you know, a lot of these advances, so this technology has, has come online because of advances in microelectronics and particularly low-power technologies, so mm. things, things that make your phone more powerful, essentially. Um, since they have come around and been developed in the past five years, these technologies have come online, you know, the wireless technology. But very little thought has been given into the actual, the, the, the interface that is what the body does and how to try and mitigate that. Yeah. And something that needs to be thought about very seriously before these things can be translated into, you know, consumer electronics. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of these um, billionaires, uh, when they get to health, um, it, it ends up getting, it be becoming trickier than perhaps um, one might have originally thought. And uh, I, I, it'd be really interesting to see because he has a lot of money, it sounds like um, you know he has the ability to quickly move. Whereas academic research is constant, the, you know the funding uh, cycle uh, really restricts, I suppose, rapid innovation and implementation in, in clinics. It'd be really interesting to see whether or not this goes anywhere, or if it just falls flat in its face, like many um, health-oriented um, innovations by billionaires who just to say, I want to want to do something like this. Yeah, well, I think that the bottleneck is going to be in that space. It's going to be the interface 
uh, between the device and between the human and how that can be worked on. Yeah. Um, certainly that's a, it's a, it's a huge uh, interdisciplinary challenge. And as long as he has the right teams involved, he may make strides in that space. But um, the, the limit so far, it, it doesn't matter how advanced the AI is, it doesn't matter how advanced the microelectronics are, the wireless technologies. It really matters um, what are the, the approaches to mitigating the, the foreign body response yeah. and how are these proven? Um, and certainly right now, there's, there's a lot of research, my own included, looking at that space. But uh, really, there, there, there are approaches to it, but I don't think right now they've been spoken about in the context of Musk's device. You know? No, and, and I, 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 I worry that that's not really what he's most interested in. He's most interested in getting the tech working, not getting the tech lasting or, um, or, or, or you know, staying there for a long time. Uh, and longevity in the brain doesn't seem like something he talks a huge amount about. No. Um, and there are patients at the end of this, five to 10 patients um, or 11 surgeries, he's, he says he, he's going to perform this year. Interesting to see what will happen in this space. Really interesting to speak with you. Um, Dr. Manus Biggs, Associate Professor at the University of Galway and from Curum. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Love to hear your thoughts on that, uh, particularly if you were a medical um, patient who was part of a trial and um, and, and that trial ended. What, what is that like? Because I remember being struck by a documentary hearing about uh, devices uh, that were implant, implanted into, I think it was brain implants, and then the company just stopped servicing them and the functionality they had disappeared and it was absolutely devastating. It was like being paralyzed all over again for these patients. Uh, horrible stuff. Okay. Time to look back at some of your comments from last week. Uh, we were talking, if you remember, about a blood test uh, for Alzheimer's. And someone says we should be making these kind of tests readily available so that people over 50 can avail of them. Speaking from personal experience, Alzheimer's is a terrible disease. Look, I, I know it well. I watched the disintegration of my poor grandmother uh, in front of my eyes from Alzheimer's and uh, nobody wants to go that way. So thank you for your text. Um, and I'm sorry that you're, you're talking from personal experience. It is early days, but yeah, I mean, a blood test for, for, um, for Alzheimer's would be incredible. Robert in Dublin was talking about the piece in news where we were talking about owls and how they had managed to fly so quietly. He says, uh, if we'd known that winged animals have had their capacity for flying honed over millennia and generations and generations, then why haven't we looked into them as a way of uh, replicating their flight for the aviation industry? Feathered airplanes sounds equally cool and terrifying and I'm all for it. Indeed, Robert, in fact, you know, this idea of biomimicry, which is a, a, a strain of science which looks at the natural world and tries to learn from to improve engineering. That's been going on for quite some time and lots of developments in uh, in all sorts of uh, areas as well as aviation have looked at biomimicry. Not many um, feathers, but certainly other adaptations that uh, might make something a little bit more aerodynamic. I think shark scales were, were, were looked at for um, whatever aerodynamic is in the water. Do you know what that word is, Maurice? No, I don't know either. We were talking about this controversial author in America who spent a crazy amount of time looking at how to make the tea perfect. And someone says, an American who thinks they know how to make tea? Maybe if we're talking about dumping a ton of sugar in there for iced tea, I'll hold off on adding salt. Thank you very much. Look, if all it is, is it takes a little pinch of salt, you might as well try it. 
And we were talking as well uh, about the Coriolis effect. Um, and, and that was a really interesting one because Paul in Arklo says, I'm deeply, deeply disappointed to hear that the flushing thing is a myth. My life has been a lie. Um, and this is indeed what we uh, we heard, heard from Connor uh, last week. He was saying that the Coriolis effect does not affect uh, how you flush. But uh, we got an email in from Ken who, long story short, he, uh, he was on the equator traveling through Africa and he met a man sitting under a sign and he said uh, he had a few plastic bowls of water and he would cross what he over what he said was the equator and he would see, he'd put a match in the water and one time, time it would go clockwise and he'd walk over the equator and then it would go counterclockwise. And uh, uh, Ken basically said, look, you know, I've seen it in effect. And so we asked Connor, because that just sounds like A, it sounds bonkers, but to, to, to me, uh, I, I was very sceptical of it because it just sounds too good to be true. And uh, interesting, Connor came back to me and says, look, that's a pretty, unfortunately, fairly established con, a very good one, very popular with all the tourists walking across the equator, but there's no science behind it, just sleight of hand. So I'm, I feel awful because poor Ken had seen something amazing, but he was just duped. And now you're finding out, Ken, I guess, um, that the the guy who showed you the Coriolis effect of the, the, the water going clockwise then anticlockwise by stepping over the equator line was just was just a, a con. It was just a trickster. So sorry to say that. Uh, love to hear your response to that, Ken. <laughs> if you have an emotional one, um, please do uh, burn, unburden yourself on the programme. You can email us, science at newstalk.com or you can tweet us, we're at Newstalk Science. That's it from us uh, on this week's programme. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keane, Steve Daunt and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sundays from midday on News Talk.